The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focus summary of Part 2, Chapters 5, and the first half of Chapter 6. A strange gentleman stoops into the room with an expression of astonishment and an affectation of affront. He stares in amazement at Raskolnikov, who lies disheveled on the dirty sofa, and at Razumihin, who looks at him with a bold and inquiring expression. Seeing that he will not succeed in overawing this crowd, he asks, addressing himself only to the most gentlemanly among them, Zosimov, which one of them is Raskolnikov. Razumihin answers, and asks, in familiar terms that undercut the pompous gentleman, what he wants. The man looks again to Zosimov, who also answers, with a prolonged and condescending yawn. Raskolnikov, who had been lying there with the appearance of one who had just undergone an operation, jumps up and asks defiantly what the stranger wants. The man answers that his name is Luzhin, and Raskolnikov, seemingly having expected the police, sinks languidly back on the sofa. Razumihin tells the man that if he has something to say, he should come in, and Luzhin squeezes awkwardly by, looking suspiciously at him. With Razumihin sniggering at the mode of his expression, Luzhin informs him that he had reason to expect that Raskolnikov's mother had told Raskolnikov to expect him. Raskolnikov suddenly remembers that this is Dunya's fiancé, and he turns to examine him with marked curiosity. He finds him to be carefully done up, in stylish new clothes and carrying fine lavender gloves for show. Though he is rather good-looking, there is nevertheless something repulsive about his countenance. Luzhin expresses his regret at finding Raskolnikov ill, saying that he would have come earlier had he not been preoccupied with a very important legal affair, and with the impending arrival of Raskolnikov's mother and sister. He says that he has found lodging for them at Bakaleyev's house, which Razumihin interjects is a filthy, stinking place of doubtful reputation, but cheap. Luzhin replies huffily that he didn't know much about it, since he is not from Petersburg, and that their rooms are clean. He says that he himself is staying with his friend Lebeziatnikov, whom Raskolnikov recalls from the sorrowful tale of Marmeladov as having beaten Katerina Ivanovna. Luzhin says he was once Lebeziatnikov's guardian, and he boasts of how much he enjoys learning from the younger generation, saying he finds them clearer and more practical. Razumihin interrupts to call all that nonsense, saying that for two hundred years Russia has been divorced from practicality, and that the new ideas, only in their infancy, are manifesting in crowds of brigands. Luzhin disagrees, saying that new, valuable ideas are replacing old, dreamy, and romantic authors, and that though they might lead the youth to mistakes, those mistakes are merely evidence for their enthusiasm and the abnormality of their environment. He declares it a good thing that they have been cut off irrevocably from the past. Raskolnikov suddenly interjects the accusation that Luzhin has learnt all these ideas by heart to show off. 
Lucian goes on to pontificate about the advances of science and economics, which now tell us that the world depends on self-interest. The old sentimental morality of love thy neighbor, he says, amounted to tearing your coat in half to share with your neighbor and leaving both of you half naked. He calls this advance in understanding a simple idea, graspable by anyone with a little wit. Razumihin responds that he himself has very little wit, and he seeks to change the subject. But first, he remarks that he is tired of all this chattering to amuse oneself, and complains that a lot of unscrupulous people have got hold of the progressive cause. The subject he takes up is the murders, and Zosimov resumes their prior conversation by saying that one of the old woman's customers must have killed her. Razumihin says that Porfiry, the investigator, agrees, and is examining all of them. Zosimov declares it a cunning and practiced crime, and Razumihin objects, saying that this was the work of a first-time criminal who was saved by chance. Lusion, desiring before he departs to throw out a few more intellectual phrases, joins the conversation, commenting how strange it is that crime is increasing in the upper classes. Razumihin blames this on a society that has grown used to having everything ready-made and wants money for nothing without working. Lusion asks, but morality, and so to speak, principles. Raskolnikov suddenly interposes that Lusion has no cause to worry about it, since the logical consequence of the theory he has just espoused is murder. Lusion's reaction is an indignant, upon my word, and a vague counterpoint that there is a measure in all things. Raskolnikov, with rising fury, then asks whether it is true that Lusion said it was better to raise a wife from poverty so that you can have complete control over her. Lusion wrathfully sputters outrage at the insulting accusation on the part of Raskolnikov's mother. Raskolnikov raises himself from his pillow with piercing, glittering eyes and threatens Lusion if he ever dares to utter a word about Raskolnikov's mother again. Lusion turns pale, bites his lip, begins an indignant speech that trails off, and then stoops out the door. Razumihin is perplexed at Raskolnikov's behavior, and Zosimov attributes it to his illness. He says Raskolnikov mustn't be irritated, and he asks Razumihin to come along. Once outside, he points out that the only subject that seems to rouse Raskolnikov is that of the murder, and Razumihin says he noticed that too. Zosimov indicates that he has a theory that they can talk over later that evening. Nastasia, left alone with Raskolnikov, offers him some tea, and he tells her to leave him alone. After she leaves, he feels a strange calm and a firm sense of purpose, and he mutters to himself, Today. He pockets the twenty-five rubles lying on the table, unlatches the door, and slips out into the street. With a savage energy in his feverish eyes, he thinks to himself, this must be ended today, because he would not go on living like that. 
He cannot think how he will do it. Thought itself is torture to him. But he feels it must all be changed, one way or another. He makes his way to the hay market, where he sees a young girl in a hat with a flame-colored feather, singing with the hope of alms. Raskolnikov puts a five-copper piece in her hands. His strange mutterings frighten a fellow onlooker, who crosses to the other side of the street. He is drawn to the spot where Lizaveta had spoken to the huckster and his wife, and he questions a young man about whether they still keep a booth there. Approaching a dense crowd of peasants, he feels a desire to enter conversation with them, but they pay him no notice. Passing drunken men staggering or unconscious in the street, he comes to an establishment with a crowd of women, their eyes blackened, thronging the door. He is attracted by the sounds of singing and dancing in the saloon below, and he bends down to peep in the entrance. As he considers whether he ought to get drunk, one of the women invites him in. He turns to move on, but she calls after him, saying she will always be happy to spend an hour with him and asking him for money. He gives her fifteen kopecks. Looking curiously at the women, Raskolnikov recalls the story he once read of a man condemned to death, thinking to himself that if he had to spend all his life, a thousand years, eternity, in one square yard of space, it would be better than to die at once. And he thinks to himself, good God, how true. And man is a vile creature, and vile is he who calls him vile for that. He arrives in the Palais de Cristal, and he recalls that he had wanted to read the stories of the murder in the papers. He goes into a restaurant, where he fancies he sees Zamyatov. Raskolnikov asks the waiter for some tea and the papers, and he sits down to go through them. He is turning the pages with nervous impatience when Zamyatov approaches him in a shabby coat with pomaded hair, wearing rings on his fingers, and flushed from champagne. Zamyatov voices his surprise at finding Raskolnikov there, given that Razumihin said he was unconscious only the day before. He asks if Raskolnikov knows he had been to see him when he was ill. Raskolnikov turns to him with irritable impatience and says he knows he has, and more, that he knows he has been with Razumihin to the house of Luisa Ivanovna, the woman he sought to befriend at the police station by winking about her to Ilya Petrovitch. He hints that Zamyatov habitually exploits his position for his own profit. But then he passes his comments off as friendly sport, something like the scuffling of those two painters. When Zamyatov asks what he knows about that, Raskolnikov replies that perhaps he knows more than Zamyatov himself. And so begins a chilling and sinister cat-and-mouse conversation in which he maniacally fans the flames of Zamyatov's suspicion. He is reading the papers. No, not about the fires. Isn't Zamyatov curious what he is reading about? He better confess. He was reading about the murder of the pawnbroker. 
Yes, the pawnbroker. The same woman about whom they were speaking in the police office when he fainted. Does Zamyatov understand? He is either mad or what? What? Yes, there have been a lot of crimes lately. He has read all about them, carefully, in detail. Those criminals are all simpletons and fools. Here's how he would have done it, and succeeded. The murderer of the old pawnbroker was a desperate man whose hand shook and who was saved only by a miracle? Well, why didn't they catch him then? Criminals like that always get caught, recklessly spending money? Well, here's how he would behave if he had been the murderer. He would have taken the money and the jewels and hidden them under a stone in some courtyard, and for a year or two, or three, he would not touch it. Then he stares at Zamyatov, his eyes glittering, his lips moving, but not uttering a word, feeling that any moment the terrible word would break out. Then he says suddenly, And what if it was I who murdered the old woman and Lizaveta? And then he realizes what he has done. Zamyatov turns white and asks, But is it possible? In a sudden and masterful turn, Raskolnikov persuades him in a moment that it was all a game, telling Zamyatov to own up that he really believed it, and suggesting this was all revenge. He says he was leading Zamyatov on to get even with him for having suspected Raskolnikov after he fainted in the police department. Zamyatov, embarrassed, says he never believed it, and he believes it less now. Raskolnikov gets up, makes one parting joke about all the money he has spent in the tavern on new clothes, like some criminal, and he goes out, trembling all over with a hysterical sensation tinged with rapture. Zamyatov, left alone, makes up his mind conclusively and declares, Ilya Petrovich is a blockhead. The next of my posts was called Lavender Gloves. The satire of Lusion in this chapter was a masterful blend of humor and insight that led up to what was, in my mind, one of the single best moments of the novel so far. We are given our first glimpse of Lusion's carefully cultivated air of importance the very moment he enters the room. He stops short in the doorway. He stares about him with undisguised astonishment. He scrutinizes the unshaven face of Razumihin and the disheveled condition of Raskolnikov. And everything he does, he does with an affectation of being alarmed and almost affronted. For him to be affronted would be one thing, but to affect affront is another. It is not so much that he is offended by their squalor, but rather that he needs them to believe he is the sort of man who would be. The description of Luzhin's appearance and dress serves to confirm the impression Raskolnikov gets from his mother's letter that Luzhin is a pompous, self-important gentleman who, quote, has the Anna, an imperial order of merit, in his buttonhole when he goes to dine with contractors or merchants, unquote. All his clothes are fresh from the tailor's, all too new and too distinctly appropriate. 
He has mutton-chop whiskers, a clean-shaven chin, and hair that has been combed and curled at the hairdresser's. And, most memorable of all, he has those exquisite lavender gloves, not worn, but carried in his hand for show. In the company of Raskolnikov and Razumihin is Zosimov, a man who had been earlier described to us as tall, fat, puffy, clean-shaven, with a big gold ring on his fat finger, fashionable and spick-and-span, and studiously free and easy, and as making failed efforts to conceal his own sense of self-importance. He, therefore, is the only one among them that Luzhin can address without compromising his dignity. But doing so also seems to set off some sort of contest to establish a gentlemanly pecking order. As he answers Luzhin's question, Zosimov lets out a deliberately prolonged and exaggerated yawn, pulls out his huge gold watch, and looks at it much longer than he needs to. Razumihin is, in his characteristic way, admirably immune to, and only entertained by, Luzhin's superiority. When we look at Luzhin through Raskolnikov's eyes, we are outraged and gravely offended. When we look at him from the perspective of Razumihin, we can only laugh and mockingly clear our throats. It seems to me lost in translation why it is so darn funny for people to say, your mama, but Razumihin's amusement at it is still contagious. Perhaps the funniest line in this chapter, one that made me laugh out loud and have to redo my recording, was Razumihin's description of Bakaleyev's house the filthy, stinking, disreputable place where Luzhin has rented rooms for Dunya and her mother. Razumihin says it is a disgusting place, of doubtful character, with queer people living there, and that he should know because he went there about a scandalous business. Luzhin's comments about his fondness for Lebeziatnikov and for the ideas and reforms of the younger generation expose him for the intellectual phony he is. When he says how much he likes to meet young people, quote, one learns new things from them, unquote, he looks around at the men hopefully, seemingly expecting them to be impressed by such a progressive outlook from such a noble gentleman. Zosimov, of the same ilk, says only, that's true. Actually, in our translation, he is said to have let drop the words, that's true, which gives the amusing suggestion that he is almost gifting them with this very empty contribution. Razumihin takes him to task, voicing much more sensible convictions about the new ideas being only in their infancy and leading to trouble. And Raskolnikov pronounces what we the readers are thinking. He's learnt it all by heart to show off. His ideas are like his lavender gloves. He just carries them around for show. I mentioned that Raskolnikov means divided, and Razumihin means reasonable. Lusion? It means puddle. Lusion's intellectual shallowness is what leads us to one of my favorite moments in the novel thus far. While, in the same room, Raskolnikov languishes on the sofa, ill, tortured, and driven mad by a crime he had persuaded himself had the logical soundness of simple arithmetic. Lusion says with enjoyment, 
Quote, of course, people do get carried away and make mistakes, but one must have indulgence. Those mistakes are merely evidence of enthusiasm for the cause and of abnormal external environment. Unquote. To have illusion, speak lightly and casually, with enjoyment, of the mistakes young people make as a consequence of an admirably overzealous enthusiasm, while Raskolnikov is there, right next to him, still in possession of a sock soaked with the blood of a woman whose head he had split in two with an axe. The juxtaposition is chilling. It felt to me like Dostoevsky was saying, you like to banter about fashionable new ideas? Look over in the corner there. There are your new ideas. I'm curious how much commonality we are supposed to see between the ideas put forth by Luzhin, who preaches self-interest, and those of Raskolnikov, whose simple arithmetic was a utilitarian calculation. I'm not sure, and if you have thoughts about that, I'd like to hear them. But in any case, it definitely seemed to me that we were meant to experience the chilling, ironic juxtaposition of Luzhin's empty rhetoric and Raskolnikov's reductio ad absurdum in action. This is a point driven home when Raskolnikov himself jumps up and interposes that the logical consequence of Luzhin's own theory is murder. This was my favorite thematic moment in the book thus far. And the next chapter had my favorite moment in the absolutely riveting and spine-tingling plot. The last of my posts was called Sinister Silence. As Raskolnikov wandered through the haymarket in a daze, taking in the sordid sights around him, having set out to end it all at once, I could only watch in suspense to discover what on earth it is he intends to do. Then, when he entered the saloon and fancied that he saw Zamyatov sitting in the corner, the tension was heightened further still. But my goodness, I had absolutely no idea just how tense, how frighteningly, rivetingly tense that scene would get. First, I cringed as I watched him antagonize and condescend to Zamyatov, mocking him for his visit to Luisa Ivanovna asking who had been pouring champagne into him now, calling him out for exploiting his position for his own profit. Then I watched in horror as he began to deliberately and systematically feed Zamyatov's suspicions with an eerie wink and a malicious mocking smile. Shall I tell you what I was reading about, what I was looking for? See what a lot of papers I've made them bring me? Suspicious, eh? Well, what is it? You prick up your ears? How do you mean, prick up my ears? I'll explain that afterwards. But now, my boy, I declare to you, no, better, I confess. No, that's not right either. I make a deposition, and you take it. I depose that I was reading, that I was looking and searching, he screwed up his eyes and paused. I was searching, and came here on purpose to do it, for news of the murder of the old pawnbroker woman, he articulated at last, almost in a whisper, bringing his face exceedingly close to the face of Zamyatov. 
I had chills at the sinister, nervous laughter that accompanied his sudden flashback to the scene of the crime, when he stood with an axe outside the door. Then, more chilling still, the laughter abruptly stopped, and he became thoughtful and melancholy, seemed unaware even of Zamyatov's existence, and sat there beside him in a long and eerie silence. When Zamyatov broke the silence with a reference to the rampant crime reported in the paper, we learned from Raskolnikov's response how long and how thoroughly he had been making a study of it. He knew the crimes, he knew the criminals' errors, and he knew precisely how he would have done it differently. The revelation of his painstaking preparations made the lights dim a little more on an already darkly sinister scene. Then I watched from the edge of my seat, my mouth agape, my eyes wide, as he told Zamyatov what he would have done with the money and jewels, what in fact we know he did do with the money and jewels, if he had been the murderer. His manner of speaking to Zamyatov, staring at him, close up to his face, so that Zamyatov shuddered, prompted me to shudder too. And then there was what has to be the single creepiest moment I have ever encountered in literature, when Raskolnikov bent down as close as possible to Zamyatov, who was cringing in fear, and his lips moved for thirty seconds without uttering a word. What a spellbinding glimpse of utter madness, and what a spine-tingling moment of suspense. Finally, I watched the word tremble on his lips while he felt that any moment it would break out, he would let it go, he would speak, and gasped as he actually did it. He said the words openly. And what if it was I who murdered the old woman and Lizaveta? And then felt himself as shocked as I was at what he had done. Lusion's lavender gloves and Raskolnikov's soundless moving lips are two images in this novel that I will never forget.